0: Hello everyone. My name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through history, culture and personal experiences. Following on from our last episode at early, I decided to do some research on the theology and history of icons and iconoclasm within Christianity. Now, in doing this, of course, I could not restrict myself to Christianity if I wanted to better understand the issues. So I also looked at the two other Abrahamic faiths being Judaism and Islam. When I started this research, I never thought that events in France would make what I was looking at internationally relevant, bringing the issue of icons, and more specifically the depiction of the Prophet Muhammad, back into the media spotlight. But for those who haven't been following events in France, just under two weeks ago, a French teacher by the name of Samuel Paddy was stabbed and then beheaded by a Chechen Muslim for depicting the Prophet Muhammad in a class that he was teaching on freedom of expression he was showing his students as an example of free speech the cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad that were published five years ago by the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo that at the time resulted in the murder of 12 people in Paris in France now Samuel Paddy is being praised as a hero and a representation of the French ideals of Liberty while around the Islamic world he is being widely condemned with the condemnation extending even to the French government But to give a quick theological summary of the debate i see the main issue as boiling down to this and now that i think about it maybe all theological debates boil down to this question but that is how do we best worship god and when specifically considering icons the question would be whether depictions of gods prophets saints and religious symbols assist in that worship so to me Both sides of the debate start from the belief that God is ineffable, incommunicable, incomprehensible, unportrayable basically that God is incapable of being accurately depicted. From here, however, the positions begin to move in opposing directions. Those who advocate for the use of statues in worship suggest that while God may remain incomprehensible and incommunicable, statues, shrines, and images provide visual representations of certain aspects of that divinity. The image or sculpture is not of itself to be worshipped, but our minds are in need of something that can be fixed on that will lead us to a deeper understanding of the truth behind the image. On the other hand, those who believe that statues are heretical do not move far from the incommunicable nature of God. It is impossible to depict God in any way, shape or form, and as soon as we provide even a depiction of what that God might be, we are creating an inaccurate picture which is at best misleading. If we come to know God through statues and images, we are easily led astray, and so by removing all statues and images, we are able to come to a greater understanding of God as revealed in either scripture, through our spiritual leaders, or through personal reflections on God's divinity. So that's what I see as the two main arguments between those that accept and those that reject icons in the religions of the book. But as we will see, while this theological reasoning is important, there are very often other factors at play that lead to the death and destruction that has occurred throughout this idea's history. But we can see that the issue of idols has existed since the very beginning of the Abrahamic faiths, with Abraham himself coming into a paganistic world filled with icons and images that represented the polytheistic deities of the other tribal groups. Abraham's key differential was that he professed a belief in one God and one way that the early Jewish community was able to distinguish itself from their non-Semitic counterparts was the denial of these polytheistic idols. Fast forward to Moses and the book of Exodus and we begin to see the prominence of the Jewish position against idols. In the Ten Commandments, the second commandment after the affirmation of God is that you shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The commandment against icons is deemed so important that it comes directly after the basic position of the existence of God. And later in the book of Exodus, we see how angry God becomes when the Israelites fashion a golden calf that they begin to worship. Moses has to convince God not to destroy his chosen people, and instead Moses breaks the calf, melts it down, and then makes the idolizing worshippers drink it. In Judaism, though, there is a wide use of symbols, such as the menorah, the Lion of Judah, and later the Star of David. But this foundational story and the positioning of the second commandment shows that from the birth of the abrahamic faiths an anti-icon sentiment has run at its core and the jewish faith has by and large held steadfast to this position but of course it's not always that straightforward after the issues with the golden calf god instructed moses to build an ark for the covenant of the lord that was to be covered with two cherubims cherubims being angels And then there's the discovery in 1932 of what is now the world's oldest synagogue on the banks of the Euphrates, which houses paintings suggesting that early Jews professed a somewhat strict observance of the second commandment not to create graven images, i.e. sculptures, but that images and paintings were acceptable. But on the whole, the traditional Hebrew position has been against idols, whether they depict false gods or God himself. In the Christian tradition, the position is far less straightforward, and when looking at this debate, it helps to keep in mind that since the beginning of Christianity, there have been two different traditions more than any others that have influenced its theology. On the one side is the Hebrew origin of Christianity. Jesus himself was of course a Jew, and his disciples who set up the early church were Jews. And as we have just seen, the Hebrew position is very much against iconography. The second tradition that has greatly influenced Christianity is the Greek tradition that first gained traction through the writings of Paul of Tarsus. Within the Greek tradition, there is a fascination with human form. In Greek religion, the gods are personified and have human forms, emotions, and relationships. In the Iliad and the Odyssey, we see the gods becoming involved in the lives of humans and having desires, tempers, and tribulations of their own. The gods are really portrayed as humans, albeit with extraordinary powers. In Greek culture, their fascination with human form is clearly seen in the Olympics, which was a pure test of physical strength and endurance. And this fascination made its way into Greek art, with there being nothing heretical about depicting the goddesses Aphrodite or Venus, even in their naked form. So on the issue of icons, we can see a clear disagreement between the early Hebrews, who rejected icons as a heresy against the unity of God's oneness, and the Greeks, whose depiction of the gods was fundamental to an awareness of their involvement in everyday life. When it came to idols, the early Christian church in general followed the Greeks' position, allowing images as long as they were Christian. Ironically, when Constantine the Great adopted Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, there was widespread destruction of statues of the Greek and Roman gods. But with this, the question naturally arises, why adopt the Greek position? Well, as we heard earlier, pagan religions had long used statues as a means of worship, and as the church was expanding across the empire, people were creating Christian statues to express their newfound religion. Christianity was adopting aspects of pagan worship, and a key part of this was the use of statues. Of course, there is a theological basis for the use of icons, which we will see later, but from the beginning, allowing icons in Christianity can be viewed as a political move to incorporate a range of practices. But in its position, an issue that the Church now faced came from one of the most fundamental pillars of the faith, which we spoke about earlier, the Ten Commandments. We remember that the second commandment was that you shall not make for yourself a graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Enter Augustus of Hippo, a North African bishop who lived in the late 4th and early 5th century. Augustus knew that the Ten Commandments had to remain just that, ten, but he needed a way to take the sting out of the second commandment as statues were becoming more and more widespread throughout the Christian world. In order to do so, he merged the first and the second commandment together, creating a unified declaration of God with an injunction against false gods. To keep the number at the required ten, he split the tenth commandment into two separate commandments so that coveting your neighbor's wife was no longer part of the general commandment not to covet your neighbor's goods. By doing this, the Catholic Church was able to continue fashioning sculptures in God's likeness, and the groups of Christians around the empire were able to continue in their worship of the idols. This was true of the Western Church in Rome, but in the Eastern Church in Constantinople, they had followed the Jewish line and continued to recognize the injunction against sculptures. But as certain Jewish groups had beforehand, they observed this injunction at a literal level, and so images, whether painted or as murals, became widespread throughout the Byzantine Empire, and the icon became a favoured image of reverence. And so the contention surrounding images remained relatively dormant for the first 700 years of the Church's life. It wasn't until the Muslim conquests of the 7th and 8th centuries that notions of the heresy of idol worship became widespread throughout the Christian world, particularly in the East but it would be wrong to lay the blame for the destruction of icons throughout the Byzantine Empire entirely at the door of the early Muslim communities. The Islamic understanding of icon is theologically similar to that of the ancient Hebrews. It is impossible for humans to provide an adequate depiction of God or any aspect of God's nature, and so any attempt at this is necessarily misleading and therefore heretical. Not only that, any such representation is entirely unnecessary since the word of allah has been perfectly revealed in the holy quran for muslims the quran is the final revelation of the divine and that leaves nothing further to be revealed with anything that is sculpted or painted being a distraction from this final work of divine art there is of course islamic art that is made up of calligraphy where passages of the quran are drawn to create beautiful scriptural displays with the true beauty being derived from the intricate poetry of the words themselves. This position is held across all major strands of Islam, and within the Quran itself, there is justification for this position. Chapter 27, verse 65 states, None in the heavens and the earth knows the unseen except Allah. While chapter 42, verse 11 goes on to say, Allah is the originator of the heavens and the earth. There is nothing like a likeness of him. However, the position on depictions of the Prophet Muhammad is less uniform. Some Shia groups allow for depictions of the Prophet, meaning such images can be seen across countries like Iran. However, Sunnis are steadfastly opposed to such representations. The concern with images of Muhammad is that the Prophet himself will become worshipped, going against the primary message of the Quran, the unity of God. Beyond the Prophet, there is also theological issues concerning depictions of living creatures. Here, it is deemed that the work of creating living things is the work of Allah alone, and any artist who tries to replicate this is heretically attempting to match the work of Allah. In the Hadith, which are the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, the Prophet states, The most severely punished of people on the day of resurrection will be those to try to make the like of Allah's creation. Following this argument, for many years Wahhabi clerics in Saudi Arabia opposed the introduction of television in the kingdom and protests erupted when TV was eventually brought in. But even in the times of Muhammad, the position was not straightforward. When the Prophet re-entered Mecca in 630, his Muslim followers destroyed all of the pagan images that existed in the city and throughout Arabia. Interestingly, however, their actions towards Christian images were markedly different in that little destruction occurred. There are even stories that the Prophet protected an image of a Jesus and Mary that was in the Muslim sacred shrine. After the prophet died, and as the Muslim empire continued to expand, they came into more and more contact with religious imagery throughout the Middle East. And with this, Christian imagery for the most part continued to be left alone. For the Muslims, there was more concern with what the images were representing rather than the representations themselves. For example, images that depicted Jesus as the Son of God were often destroyed as they went against the Islamic belief that Jesus while an important prophet was not God incarnate while if the image depicted Jesus as a man they were left alone there was one interesting exception to this general aversion to destroying christian images and that was of the image of the cross the cross had become an image of the byzantine empire and it was revered by all christians across the middle east during the seventh and eighth centuries crosses were found in public spaces on all manner of buildings and especially during public processions. It had become a political symbol, as well as a religious one. And with this in mind, the Islamic objection to the cross can be viewed from a number of positions. First, of course, there is the theological position that the cross represents the death and resurrection of Jesus, and is a stark reminder to Christians of both the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. Thus, it represents one of the main disagreements between Islam and Christianity that we spoke about before. Whether the Christ was, in fact, divine. There was a second political reason for the destruction of crosses, as it was the symbol of the Caliphate's main northern enemy, the Byzantines, and by destroying churches, they were rooting out any opposition to its rule within its own borders. Thirdly, numerous crosses that existed throughout the Middle East were intricately decorated with gold and silver, and so the destruction of the crosses can be seen from a materialistic perspective in that the Muslims were seeking the materials inlaid within the crosses. In fact, in describing the destruction of crosses during this time, one of the near contemporary historians, Severus al-Muqaffar, describes how only crosses made out of gold or silver were destroyed. Of course, any one of these reasons could have provided justification alone. But when we look at them together, we see how the criticism of images and their destruction is not always based just on religious reasoning. In the Caliphate of Yazid II in 720, there was widespread destruction of Christian images by Muslims throughout the Middle East. Yet even still, it does not appear that Yazid was influenced by the theological beliefs of Islam, but was rather influenced by a Syrian Jew that told him that if he produced an edict for the destruction of images throughout the Caliphate, then he would reign for 30 years. After Yazid's brief three-year reign, his successor, Hisham Abd al-Malik, repealed the edict and allowed Christians throughout the empire to follow their customs undisturbed. So, apart from the brief anomaly that was Yazid's reign, the Islamic empire had little to do with the destruction of images throughout the Middle East on strictly religious grounds. Now, the emperor of Byzantine at this time, Leo III, had spent his life fighting the Muslims on the borderlands of the Byzantine empire, at a time when the Muslims were having great military success and he came to view part of the Muslim success as arising from their rejection of images of God. Some historians believe that it was the same Syrian Jew that had influenced the policies of Yazid II, who got into Leo's ear, but nevertheless, with his empire under threat, he began to call for the removal of idols, images, and statues. This campaign picked up speed under Leo's son, Emperor Constantine II, Emperor Constantine V, and in 754 he called what has become known as the Headless Council. It is in this environment that we begin to see the Christians position being teased out. The declaration that was reached at the end of the Headless Council was that the great monotheistic fears of the Old Testament were being realised. People were worshipping the idols themselves and taking the minds of those praying away from the words of the clergy. The Council went further and held that by creating images of Jesus, artists were denying the fundamental position that Jesus was both human and divine. Painters and sculptors were providing only an image of Christ as a man, as they could not of course endow their art with God's divinity. As such, the Council heavily condemned all images of God, Christ, or the saints in all forms. A noticeable absence from the headless council's declaration was the symbol of the cross. As we saw earlier, the cross had become a symbol of the Byzantine Empire, and so its absence suggests a level of political influence coming from the emperor himself. The main individual arguing against these developments was a monk in the newly conquered Arab lands in a small monastery between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. Saint John of Damascus had encountered the Islamic iconoclastic ideas and began to write against them. In his work, he creates a distinction between adoration and veneration. Adoration can only be offered to God alone, while veneration is an action that allows a person to use an icon or statue as a means to contemplate who or what the image represents. St. John also wrote that through Jesus, God has entered into the material world and given matter a new dignity through which we can worship him. While God remains unknowable, by focusing attention on images, we can come closer to what these images represent and get even the slightest glimpse of the divine. Amongst all this... Leo III and Constantine V's iconoclastic changes coincided with a string of military victories against the Muslims, so it appeared to those at the time that their newfound image of piety was having a worldly impact. But after the death of Leo IV in 780, the empire took a drastic turn. A new council was called, resulting in the Second Council of Nicaea in 787. And here, the church fathers roundly denounced and overturned the position of the headless council and followed the reasoning of John of Damascus to allow images to be venerated once more. After a later imperial flip-flop, this has remained the position of the eastern church to the present day, and the second council of Nicaea was the last eastern council to be accepted in the western church. As for the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople would hold out against the armies of Islam until 1453 and it has remained since then in one form or another under Islamic control. Within Constantinople, the Hagia Sophia was founded as a church in the year 360. It then became a mosque and in today's Istanbul, the Hagia Sophia stands as a living museum to the different theological ideas that have moved through the city. Atop the great dome stands the word Allah in exquisite Islamic calligraphy and around the church come mosque are other instances of this Islamic art. To the front, a gold-embossed Jesus has been uncovered beneath the plasterwork that was laid over the image by Islamic scholars and similarly throughout the building there were other revealed mosaics that depict Christ, his family and his disciples. Here in this one building we see two faiths. Existing side by side and both pointing to their differing methods of understanding the incomprehensible Under the secular rule of Kemal Ataturk the mosque became a museum But recently President Erdogan of Turkey has announced that the Hagia Sophia will once again hold Friday prayer services for Muslims Personally, I think this is a great development to see this building of faith continue for the reason that it was built But for what it's worth i also think that the turkish government should provide for christian church services to be held there on sundays allowing the building to reconnect with its christian roots and to be a new site of religious welcome and acceptance of course outside the eastern church contention over icons has also existed in the western church and became a real force of destruction and theological wrangling during the protestant reformation interestingly The main protagonist of the Reformation, Martin Luther, was supportive of icons, while the other important figure of the time, John Calvin, was staunchly anti-icon, and he looked back to the texts from the time of the 8th century to support his argument. It's interesting at this point to compare the arguments of Luther, and Calvin, and the Headless Council to see how they used their reasoning to arrive at different positions on icons, And here we see the complexity of this minefield and how people struggle with the overriding question of what is the best way to worship God. So for the headless council, they said that people should focus on the words of the clergy and so icons were a distraction for the people. Luther argued that people should not focus on the words of the clergy, but instead seek God in their own readings of the Bible. And icons provided a valuable means by which they could come to know God. Calvin similarly argued that people should not focus on the words of the clergy, but he then stated that icons were as much a distraction for the people coming close to God as the clergy were, and the word of God as found in the Bible is where they should focus their attention. In this sense, Calvinism bore a resemblance to Islam. In Reformation England, Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's first minister, and Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, were beginning to push for the breakup of the old Catholic Church and the creation of the Church of England. As part of this, they called for the removal of icons across the English countryside, and as we saw at Ely, statues and shrines were defaced and destroyed, stained glass windows were smashed out, and painted walls were bleached white. But the Reformation period was not the only time that destruction of statues on religious grounds has occurred in England. During the time of the English Civil War, in the middle of the 17th century, Parliament had become iconoclastic, and in 1643, they passed an ordinance for the utter demolishing, removing, and taking away of all monuments of superstition or idolatry. But what became of this? The destruction and removal of monuments was meant to take place by November of that year, but November came and went, and no work had been done it was left to private citizens like william dowsing to carry out the legislated destruction an interesting anecdote is when dowsing entered pembroke college chapel in cambridge university where he was confronted by five college fellows who debated him on the legal and theological grounds for his destruction dowsing quoted from the book of acts the first book of kings and exodus while the fellows countered with deuteronomy and contested the book of kings Both sides believed that they were on the right theological side of the aisle, with the other denying the appropriate worship of God. It's hard to put much religious emphasis on the actions of the iconoclasts during the English Civil War, as if they had really believed that the worship of icons would result in their damnation. Then surely after Parliament had passed such a law, then the widespread destruction of statues and images would have quickly followed. The Ordinance of Parliament can be seen, therefore, not so much as a theological statement, but a political one that rejected what they saw as the continuing Catholic influence on the Church of England. So within these iconoclastic arguments, it's important to keep in mind what people are really arguing for. Of course, a lot of the arguments are theologically based, and there are logical and reasonable arguments on both sides regarding the use of images and statues in worship. But there are also other reasons that are political, materialistic, to cause offence, and even to terrorise. But if we can think back and remember that from the religious perspective, both those for and against idols start from the same point, the indecipherability of God. We can all recognise that no artist is able to create an image or sculpture that encapsulates the divine in all its complex simplicity. Yet there are those that find within images, expressions of God's beautiful creation and a useful way to come closer to the divine, while others find such images distracting from the search that ultimately must occur within. Coming forward to the 21st century, it appears that the iconoclast wars are back with the events in France being only the most recent example. And I think above all, amongst the disagreements, destruction and unfortunately death, What will help in all this is a greater understanding of the beliefs that are different from our own. Because from this understanding comes respect. If you've gotten this far, thank you very much for listening. I'll post a transcript of this recording on our website so you can check it out there if you want to. But thank you very much for listening and I hope you enjoyed the podcast.